If you please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 and then 12 through 19. So 1 through 8 and 12 through 19. And we're, finishing, we're beginning a new section in our study of, of 1 Corinthians. We've just finished our discussion of corporate worship in chapters 11 through 14. And today we start a very important section in chapter 15, dealing with the resurrection. And this is really the largest section in all of Scripture talking about this essential Christian doctrine of the resurrection. And those of you who have been at Northgate for at least five years know that we've looked at this passage several times. I've preached at least two Easter sermons on the first uh, few verses of this chapter. And Travis has done several Sunday school lessons looking at evidence, evidence for the resurrection. So we've looked at this. And the first 11 verses of this chapter, they really provide the clearest articulation of evidence of Christ's resurrection, clearest that we have in all of Scripture. And these verses, they they have a tremendous apologetic value. That is when we're arguing for the truth of Scripture. And if you're interested for this very strong case, again, I I urge you to listen to uh, uh, Travis's uh, Sunday School lesson that he did back in 2017 called Evidence for the Resurrection. And that's uh, available on our sermon audio site. And I actually listened to that prior to, to writing this sermon. But that's not what we're going to look at today. This is not going to be an Easter sermon. And this is great information. There's great information about Jesus' resurrection. But really, that's just an aside in this passage. It's an important aside, but it's a side in this passage. So the main point of this passage is not about Jesus' resurrection. Paul uses Jesus' resurrection as evidence to correct the real error that the Corinthians held. And that error is that many in Corinth did not believe in a resurrection, did not believe in a physical resurrection of the dead. And more than that, they didn't even think that a bodily resurrection, a real bodily resurrection of the dead, was even necessary, was even important to be a Christian. And you know what? Just like many of the the issues that we have looked at so far in the study of this 1 Corinthians, I would guess that the view with respect to bodily resurrection of the dead held by, by the Corinthians is not much different than that which is held by the vast majority of Christians today. They see there's no real reason. There's no, there's, it's not important that the dead are raised. See, we have a lot of talk in the church about the world, you know, making an impact on this world. There's even some talk about heaven, although much less than about the world. But there's very little talk at all about our ultimate destination. The new heavens, the new earth, where our souls will be eternally joined with glorified bodies. Either bodies that have been resurrected from the dead for the saints who have died prior to Christ's return, or bodies that are instantaneously glorified for those who are alive when Christ returns. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8 and 12 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And on on verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are found, even found, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this guide. We thank you for the hope that we have of a resurrection. Father, I pray for your spirit to be with us. We need your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear from you. I pray, Father, for your spirit to be with me, that you will anoint my words, that I will speak only your truth. And Father, I pray that you will use your word read, your word preached to change us, to make each one of us here, each one who hears my voice, more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. It was on May 21st, 1922, almost exactly a hundred years ago, one of the most influential sermons of all time was preached at First Presbyterian Church in New York City by Harry Emerson Fosdick, and it was entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And this was during the height of what has been known as the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And this really split apart the Protestant church in the early decades of the 20th century. And sadly, many once faithful Churches have fallen victim to this modernist teaching and have abandoned the Christian faith altogether. And Fosdick was a modernist. He believed that in order to survive, Christianity had to adapt. It needed to be modernized. It needed to be brought in alignment with the teachings of the modern culture, of modern science. And as such, Christianity needed to be cleansed of what he considered superstitions and mythology things that were opposed to science, at least how we understood it, things like reference to miracles, things like six-day creation, things like the virgin birth, and most importantly, the resurrection needed to be removed. And the biggest doctrine, the biggest doctrine that had to go away was what was seen as the most barbaric aspect of biblical Christianity, and that is the substitutionary atonement. See, the modernists saw the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement as divine child abuse. They saw it as the primitive idea that, that God had to be appeased with a blood sacrifice. And this completely violated their view of God as a God of unconditional love and totally total fatherly acceptance of all people, regardless of sin and regardless of whether they repented or not. And the modernists believed the attraction of Christianity was in its great moral teachings and the fact that they saw Jesus as this great moral teacher. They didn't see him as God in the flesh. They saw him as an enlightened teacher for us to be a role model, an example, nothing more, certainly not a savior. And the modernists sought to retain the, the ethical code of Christianity without any of the truth claims that undergirded Jesus' teaching. So they saw no need for miracles. They saw no need for the virgin birth for the resurrection of Christ. They saw none of that for Christianity to be useful, for Christianity to be relevant to the modern culture. See, Jesus was looked at as a moral example and nothing more. <clears throat> but as we have seen during this last hundred years, Christianity's moral teachings 
when they are severed from the supernatural foundation, grounded in truth, grounded in the character of God himself, when this is done, Christianity simply becomes one of many competing options. And what we see today is that those who attempted to rescue the Bible's morals from superstition, they have now completely surrendered those very morals that they hoped to save. Today, the theological liberals and progressives, who are the successors of the modernists, not only dismiss all the supernatural truth claims of the Bible, but they now reject the moral teachings themselves. Christian morals, that would have been accepted by Fosdick and the, the, uh, the modernists, to them, they're found to be utterly repugnant. Now they're seen utterly repugnant. And they need to be eradicated from polite society. See, the modernists, like their progressive successors, for the most part, did not reject the idea of the afterlife. Although some did. Some were atheists. They most, most of them were universalists. They, they, they rejected the idea of a literal hell, of course. They preferred universalism, and, and maybe the extreme would be annihilationism. That is, that the, at some point, the, everyone would be saved, and if they would not be saved, they would just be annihilated. But most of them believed in some form of heaven. But it was only a spiritual heaven. It wasn't a physical heaven. It was an eternal spiritual realm where they existed. It wasn't a physical place, and it would, they would have no physical body. They would be eternity, eternally just a spirit. In fact, the idea of a physical resurrection and a a literal reuniting of a soul with our body in the physical world, that would be be seen as intellectually absurd. But it would also be crude. It would be emotionally unsatisfying to them. And I'd hazard to guess that this is not only the view of modernists and progressives, but it's at least a subconscious view, understanding of many Christians. Many Christians, while not denying the resurrection of Jesus and and not denying the future resurrection of of the dead in Christ, they really see no value in this doctrine. It's something that, if it weren't true, really wouldn't faze them at all. In other words, I would guess that the eschatological hope, and that means the hope of our final eternal existence, for many is that of a disembodied spirit in God's presence in heaven rather than an eternal physical being in a glorified body, in a real physical world. And even as Christians, we talk much about this world. We talk some of heaven, but we talk very little at all, if any, about the new heavens and the new earth, about a a resurrected existence in a glorified body and a renewed physical creation. And completely contrary to the modernist premise that Christianity had to adapt to a modern understanding of science and, and philosophy to be relevant to the culture? The truth is that modernism is not modern at all. In fact, the, Cor- the Corinthian church faced the exact same temptations as the modernists. The prevailing conception of the afterlife in Greek culture was that of a, being an, an immortal, perfect soul, actually being liberated from a, a frail, corrupt body. You see, the Greek culture, the idea that we would exist eternally in a physical body, this would have been seen as obscene. They would have hated this idea. And as such, the more sophisticated members of this Corinthian church, they held this Greek view. They rejected the idea of the resurrection of the dead, and specifically the idea that Christians would be raised from the dead. They didn't explicitly deny Christ's resurrection, but but truthfully, they saw no need for it. Perhaps they were embarrassed by it. They didn't want to to emphasize a doctrine that was so offensive to them and to their surrounding culture. 
And Paul strongly corrects this error in the Corinthians. See, contrary to the view of the, the Corinthians and the modernists and the progressives, and even many in today's church, the resurrection of the dead is not an optional, is not a superfluous doctrine. Resurrection is central to the gospel. Without the resurrection, you have no Christianity. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. That's Paul's message in this section. And Paul isn't pulling punches here. From the very start of this chapter, Paul lets them know that this is an essential salvation issue. This is an issue that hits at the heart of the gospel. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, it's a gospel issue. The gospel that Paul preached to them, the gospel that they received, the gospel that regenerated them, the gospel in which they stand, the gospel which is the only means of eternal salvation. And what the Corinthians saw as a minor accommodation to the culture, Paul warns them will undermine the gospel and will render their faith, which is a false faith, will render their faith vain and completely ineffective to save them. My friends, this is a big deal. This should get their attention. This should get our attention. In verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on to define the gospel. He goes back to the beginning. He reminds them of the essential or the essence of the teaching that he delivered to them. And this teaching was not Paul's own teaching, but Paul himself received this teaching. And scholars believe that verses 3 and 4 contain one of the earliest creeds of the Christian church, dating back to maybe within even a few months of Christ's resurrection. And again, I would encourage you to listen to Travis's Sunday School lesson on this, where he actually walks through the evidence of putting this creed within a few months of the resurrection. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And first of all, notice that Paul says that what he delivered to them is of first importance. First importance. It makes it clear that this is not a side issue. This is not a secondary issue. This is not something that earnest Christians can disagree about. This is essential. And without this, there is no gospel. Without without this, there is no Christianity. Without this, there is no salvation. The first part of this creed that Paul has received is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, died as our substitute. This is a clear reference to the substitutionary atonement. And this is an especially odious doctrine to the modernists and to the liberal. And this idea of substitutionary atonement is not a doctrine that's made up by Paul, but it's seen throughout the scripture. It's seen in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It's seen in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And it is abhorrent to the modernists and the liberal. In a recent online discussion that I had with an Episcopal priest, I quoted just a few passages that, that, that support the substitutionary atonement. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And lastly, speaking about Christ, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the Episcopal priest saw this as utterly barbaric and offensive. And I was just quoting scripture. But for Paul, for Paul, this is the essence of the gospel. This is of first importance. No atonement, no substitutionary atonement, no gospel. No gospel, no salvation. And the modernists and, the, and, the progr- and their progressive successors see the essence of Christianity not as the atonement, which they loathe, but as some generic, undefined, malleable love. Love that denies our sinfulness, nature, our fallen nature, Love that tolerates idolatry, tolerates false worship, tolerates perversion, tolerates unbelief, and tolerates any other wickedness that is defined by Scripture. In fact, the only thing that's not tolerated is submission to the commands of Scripture. And this view, this denying the substitutionary atonement that Christ died for our sins, for the sins of his people, this is not Christian. To say as clear as I can, if you deny the substitutionary atonement, you cannot be Christian. Jake Gresham Machen, in his classic work, Christianity and Liberalism, was spot on when he said that Christianity and Liberalism are not different approaches to the same religion, but they are wholly separate religions. Wholly separate religions. You might as well be talking about Christianity and Islam or Buddhism. That's how different it is. And the person who claims to be a Christian, even a Christian minister who rejects substitutionary atonement, who rejects the bodily resurrection of Christ, is every bit as lost as the atheist and needs to repent and receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. He must be born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, no born-again Christian could deny the atonement. It is their only hope. It's the only hope of reconciliation with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it's the second part of this creed that Paul delivers of first importance, equally important. It's the second part that, that's often seen as not necessary. It's, 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 it's not denied, it, it, but rather what it is, it's neglected. It's overlooked by believers, both in Corinth and today, here. In verse 4, Paul conti- continues with what is of first importance. He says that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, if we're simply looking forward to heaven, to a spiritual afterlife, then the resurrection is is not essential. In fact, it's a distraction. It's a, a needless hindrance to making the gospel appealing to the culture, both the Greek culture and the American culture. Think about the, the sinner's prayer. We usually think of that as the, it's kind of the, the, the bare minimum to get someone saved. And it usually goes something like this. And, and sometimes they don't even say it. We pray it for someone else. We just say to agree it. And it's something like this, Lord, I, I know that I'm a sinner, I violated your law, and, and I trust Jesus paid the penalty for my sins on the cross, and I now receive and rest upon Jesus for forgiveness of sins and for salvation. And this hits on the substitutionary atonement. This is good on the substitutionary atonement, but there's no mention at all of the resurrection. No mention at all of the new heavens and the new earth. It's completely unnecessary. Now, I'm not saying that that's needed for someone to be regenerated, but unfortunately, we never go beyond that. 
And there are true Christians, true Christians that are going to heaven that give no thought whatsoever to the doctrine of the resurrection. That don't even think about it, don't even understand it, don't even care about it. But according to Paul, this is of first importance. It means it should be something that we're thinking about. It means it should be something that we believe. In verses 5 through 9, Paul makes it clear that Jesus' resurrection was a physical reality. It wasn't an hallucination. It wasn't some spiritual mumbo-jumbo. I remember hearing the, the president of, of Union Theological Seminary a couple of years ago on Easter. Uh, she was asked, what does the resurrection mean? And she says, well, of course it wasn't a, a physical resurrection. We know that. But what, what the resurrection means is Jesus was alive in the hearts of his disciples. That's what the resurrection means to her. That's mumbo-jumbo. It means nothing. Paul believed and proclaimed a real and physical and verifiable resurrection. And Paul here lists real people, real people that saw Jesus, more than 500 people. And here's the really amazing thing. Most of those people were still alive at the time that Paul wrote this letter. It was likely that the Corinthians would have had personal contact with an eyewitness of the resurrection. They're probably in their church. When Paul is saying, yep, I was one of them. I saw the resurrected Christ. This letter was written only about 20 to 25 years after the resurrection. So think of an event that happened 20 to 25 years ago. Think about 9-11. What if someone was telling you that was just a myth? It was all made up. There wasn't really an attack on the World Trade Center. There are people who've seen it. I know people personally who were there on that day, who saw the rubble, who are at ground zero, who will say, no, that was real. Well, in spite of this vast evidence of the resurrection, there's still some in the Corinthian church that said that there is no resurrection of the dead. And they see this, and we see this in verse 12. And these people that Paul is addressing are not explicitly denying that Jesus was resurrected, but rather what they're denying is the fact that the dead are resurrected at all. They're raised at all. Now, obviously, this is inconsistent. These Corinthians hadn't considered this inconsistency. But Paul, as is his fashion, he connects the dots for them. And he shows them the logical conclusions of their faulty thinking. And we see this argument chain in verses 13 through 19. And it's a very elegant argument. And we're going to look at this argument one step at a time. So starting at verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So saying, if, if, if the dead are not raised, Christ himself is not raised. Now, one of the fundamental problems in the Corinthian church, and one that was really underlying not just this error, but many of the errors that we've looked at, and we've talked about this at the beginning of this, of this sermon series, is what is called over-realized eschatology. Anyone remember talking about that? Remember what that means? Over-realized eschatology. See, it's, it's, it's a very common problem. We see it today often in many Christians. This is a central error in many churches, from the prosperity gospel churches to Pentecostal churches, and even in conservative evangelical churches, the churches that promote a, a conservative political agenda, and they put their hope in a political system. And over-realized eschatology sees that now, now is the time of glory for the Christian. This theology of glory is contrasted with the theology of the cross. See, the theology of glory thinks it's going to keep getting better and better and better. We are going to have our best life now. There is going to be no suffering. It's going to be good times now because we are a Christian. But theology of the cross, theology of the cross understands that although there are many joys in this life, there are many blessings in this life, it understands that we are not yet in glory. There is still much pain. There is still much trial. There is still much sin in this world. But 
theology of the cross knows that the glory will come. The time will be ultimately fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth where we will have those good days and it will be better than we can even imagine today. And because of this over-realized eschatology and theology of glory, the Corinthians were more concerned with the here and now. They were concerned about having your best life now. They didn't really think much of heaven. They, th- they, they thought of it as kind of fire insurance. Yeah, it'll be a, a place of rest. But now is the most important time. Now is the time of glory. And you see the irony in this over-realized eschatology. See, because they mistakenly thought now was the time of glory, they completely neglected the true time of glory, the future time of glory, the time that Christ had promised, that is, that is promised in Scripture. But even worse than that, by denying the resurrection of the dead, they are unintentionally denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And once they go down this path, my friends, bad things happen. And Paul continues in verse 14. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Let that sink in. Did you hear what he just said? If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. That is preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the good news. The good news is in vain if Christ has not been raised. It is ineffective. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, the gospel is useless. And if the gospel preached is useless, then the faith that the Corinthians placed in that gospel is also useless. It is vain. In other words, it cannot save them. <clears throat> and this is extremely important. If there's no resurrection, say tomorrow archaeologists found this box and it was proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that it contains the bones of Jesus Christ. If that was found, then it's game over. Our faith is in vain. The church should, I would say we should shut, shut down. And, and you could all sleep in on Sunday morning. Because it would all be a lie. It would all be a lie. And we would have no hope. See, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. He is divine. It proves that Jesus' atonement on the cross for our sin was accepted by God. See, there is much, much at stake here. Now, let's get very personal. If Jesus was not resurrected, we are all lost. We have no hope. And when we die, we simply die. At best, we become worm food. At worst, we, become, we spend an eternity in conscious torments of hell. But people will, con- will, 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 will counter and say, yeah, John, you're going way overboard with this. Your faith it doesn't have to be a resurrection. Your, your faith provides comfort in this life. That's a good thing. It makes you feel good. It helps you be a better person because you think there's going to be heaven. So, so there's no harm in believing there's a resurrection if intellectually you know it's not true. But Paul says there is harm. There is harm. See, claiming that Christ was raised when he was not, this is wicked. And you know why it's wicked? Because it's misrepresenting God. Take a look at the next verse, verse 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. See, Paul is saying that if the resurrection is not true and we claim that it is, we're misrepresenting God. We're blaspheming God. I mean, think about how offended each of you are if someone misrepresents you, if someone says you said something you didn't, if someone says you did something you didn't, and you're misrepresented. You'd be angry, and rightfully so. Think how much more offensive this would be if we misrepresent the God of the universe. This is not an insignificant thing. And Paul gives us the conclusion 
of where this thinking leads, where this error held by the Corinthians and, and held by many in the modern church, where this false theology leads. He gives us in verses 16 through 18. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who fall asleep in Christ. He's talking about those who have died. Those who have perished. If, if, if the resurrection is not true, then they are lost. They are gone forever. You will never see them again. See, one of the biggest advantages of the Christian faith, and even atheists will, will agree to this, is that Christianity provides hope, provides comfort for those who are mourning, for death, because it's beyond this world. There's no, there's no hope, there's no comfort in this world when someone is taken, a loved one is taken out of this world. And it provides hope that our loved one is now with Christ. The person that was such a, a big part of our life here on this earth has not just simply ceased to exist like a, like a light switched off. Our hope is that our, our loved one is now united with Christ. Someone who was united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is now with their beloved Savior in heaven. And we take comfort in this. We take comfort in Jesus' words. And every funeral that I've been to, at some point, these words of Jesus from John 14, 1, and 1 through 3, are read. And Jesus himself said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. My friends, these are such comforting words. This is Jesus himself saying that you are not going to be left alone. I am going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and bring you to myself. But if the resurrection is not true, these words are a lie. These words are an illusion. Then we have no hope. No hope that we will ever see this lost loved one again. They're simply gone forever. And verse 19 states as clearly as possible the consequences if there's no resurrection. He says, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So my friends, each of us will be tempted. We will be tempted by what seems like a simple and a harmless compromise. Smart people will tell us that, that miracles are not possible. Smart people will tell us that, that, that people, the dead does not rise. People from the dead do not rise. They say it's impossible for, for our bodies that have been burned or, or de de uh, decomposed or destroyed. It's impossible for them to be reconstituted. It's impossible for them to be resurrected. And we're told it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if there is a physical resurrection of the dead. And we're told that the only thing that matters is that we follow Jesus' example. An example that doesn't come from Scripture but comes from usually from people's imagination and we are told that we are to, to love unquestionably, accept everyone unquestionably, and accept every sin unquestionably. And we're told that we're to, to live our lives here is all how we live our lives here is all that matters. And believing in a literal resurrection is foolish and it's unnecessary. That's what we'll be told. And my friends, these temptations come from the pit of hell. See, what they do is they seek to destroy our faith. They seek to destroy Christ's church, and they have. They have destroyed so many faith faithful churches who are now not even Christian at all. They seek to nullify our witness. They blaspheme our God, saying that he's a liar, saying his word is a liar. And worst of all, they deceive many souls, many souls into blindly marching into a Christless eternity of unspeakable pain 
and horror. My friends, Christ has been raised from the dead. The proof is overwhelming. And it is on this solid rock, the solid rock of a crucified and risen and glorified Jesus Christ, that our faith is grounded. We have a hope. We have a hope that we too will be like Christ in our physical, resurrected, and glorified body for all eternity. And we will be restored. We will live in a restored and and perfect and sinless new heavens and new earth. So my friends, hold firm to this faith. Boldly proclaim this faith. Even if people say that you are a hater, boldly proclaim this faith and resist all temptations to compromise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that we have a hope in you. We have a hope that we will be raised, that we will be perfect, that we will live for eternity in a perfect, restored new heavens and new earth where there will be no sin, there will be no pain, there will be no crying, there will be no death. Each day will be better than the last day, and this will go on for all eternity. That is our hope. And Father, I pray that we will be faithful. Father, there is so much pressure for us not to proclaim this, to look at this world as all there is, and look at maximizing our enjoyment and our happiness, and even the good that we could do in this world as the only thing. But Father, that is not going to help. That is not going to help making people have better marriages or even more successful if they are heading to hell. The only thing that can truly transform them is the gospel of grace. And you have entrusted that to your people. And may we be faithful in proclaiming that and carrying out the great commission of making disciples of this world for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.